James chapter 1, let's begin in verse 12. James writing by the Spirit, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. And he observes himself, for he observes himself, goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we just love your word. We love the beauty of it. We love to be fashioned by it. We love that it doesn't change. We love that it's not um, subjected to opinion polls. Or it, it, We just love how clear it is. We need it to be that clear, Lord. Thank you that we have the privilege to build our lives upon it, Lord. We pray that you would give us individually and also corporately a supernatural hunger for your word. We pray, Lord, that we would be doers of your word. And I pray, Lord, that you, by your spirit, would make application of these verses as only you can. Lord, you know what that looks like individually for each one of us in this room. We're so grateful that your spirit, as he teaches us, he does what only he can do and to make that application of how we can put these things into practice. We pray, Lord, that we would be free from deception in this church, complete, especially self deception. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you would help us, Lord, to bring you glory by our lives. We use this passage for that purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We are studying a very practical book, The Nuts and Bolts of Life. I mean, just how you live. It's, does, it's not in the realm of the theoretical. It's not giving us instruction related to things that only are relevant to our lives occasionally. <laughs> this is everyday life. I love this book. It's so practical in so many ways. James doesn't waste words. Have you noticed that? You don't have to wonder, hey, James, what do you really think? <laughs> He's clear, and we need God to be clear. 
I don't need something complicated. I'm, I'm thick-headed in many ways. No amens now. Uh, and I need something very clear for me to get. But the Holy Spirit demands in this book that we obey God's word. As I said last week, there's over 50 imperative verbs in this book. One out of every two verses is, is giving us a command in the original language. That's very significant. And he has expectations related to our lives. And he doesn't like lukewarm Christians. Jesus said he will spew us out of his mouth if we're lukewarm in the book of Revelation. I don't know what that fully means, but I don't want to find out. And I suspect you're the same as me. And all of us are lukewarm at times, myself included. That's just fact. That's just reality. We're not red hot all the time. And in the book of Revelation, uh, cold water was valuable too. But we're not either of those extremes all the time. So let's not kid ourselves. We struggle. That's why we need these words every single day. We need to have these things imparted into our lives so that we don't forget and that we're fashioned. We saw last week that James is the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus had four brothers and at least two sisters. This was a family of seven. This was a family that wasn't affluent. They lived in a house where, you can imagine, seven, at least seven kids in this house. There are not eight bedrooms here. He was a carpenter. He was, they were a poor family. They weren't affluent. It lines up with everything of how, with, related to how Jesus came to this world. And so James knew Jesus in a way that none of the other disciples did. He had, a, he had a 30 years experience with the Lord Jesus before he even started his public ministry. And he lived an amazing life before his public ministry. At his baptism, as we looked at last week, he said, This is my beloved son in whom I am already well pleased. That's the language there. That's the grammar. He had lived a sinless life all the way up to that point, and James was exposed to that. He saw things that none of the disciples ever did. He didn't believe up until after Jesus' resurrection, but he likely heard Jesus teach a lot even before he started his public ministry. Jesus, as a boy, was at the temple. He was left behind, and he, he was very knowledgeable of the Word, obviously. He is the Word incarnate. And James heard Jesus share about the truths of these things. But also, I'm sure he was very exposed to these things, even in his unbelief in Jesus' public ministry. But the Lord Jesus appears to him after he rose from the dead. He became a believer. And just, can you imagine him thinking, how could I have missed this? How could I be so blind? How could I have missed my brother being the Messiah? So that's the heart from which this letter comes. James is known, and one church writer tells us that he was called Old Camel Knees. Because he had calluses on his knees. They were black from prayer, from praying so many hours a day. He was, he was a man very consumed with holiness, thus the book, inspired by the Spirit. Now last week we saw him begin by talking about trials, that we should count it all joy or calculate what we're going through as something that's beneficial to us because what it works in us is patience and, and patience must have its work in us so that we're complete, not lacking anything. And so we have to receive trials as something that God uh, takes advantage of in our lives to make us more like Christ. But in the middle of a trial, sometimes we don't know what to do. There's a million decisions coming our way that we have to make, and we need wisdom. So we were told that there's wisdom for us if we ask in faith. 
Not that God could give us the wisdom, but that God will give us the wisdom when we need it. And in the passage, he doesn't guarantee when that wisdom's coming. <laughs> it's, when we need it, he'll give it. He doesn't guarantee it's going to happen immediately, but he says he will give it and we shouldn't doubt. And if we do doubt, we're like a double-minded man, like a wave that's tossed to and fro in the sea, and we shouldn't expect to receive anything from him. That's a good exhortation. Now, in this week, he's going to talk about trials as well, but he's going to do it in a little bit different, from a little bit different of, a, of an angle. Last week when we talked about trials, we're talking about things that happen from without, circumstances, things that happen in our lives, live in a fallen world, things that people do to us that are uh, for evil. God's sovereign over those things. And he works those things out to further conform us into the image of Christ. But this week he's talking about a different type of trial, and it's the same word. But it's talking about the trial from within. And he talks about the very nature of temptation. It's quite different than what we believe temptation to be or, or the cause of it in many ways. And he's going to illuminate those things. So let's look at that in verse 12. He says, the reward of properly navigating temptation comes in verse 12 when he says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the man. That word means, oh, how happy. Sometimes we hear people say, well, God really doesn't speak much about our happiness in the Bible. Every time you see the word blessed, he's talking about our happiness. There is a happiness that he wants for our lives, but it's rooted and based in him and obeying him and living the life that he's called us to live. And he says, for when he has been approved, that means to be tested or proven. When a person has lived this life, enduring temptation, not giving into it is the major thing that, that, that is written over their life at the end of their life. There's a reward. He's not talking about you earning salvation. That's already been settled. This crown of life in verse 12 is speaking about a reward. And so he says, the natural, as far as God's concerned, the natural appropriate response to temptation is enduring it, not giving into it. Well, you know, if I'm going through temptation, you know, um, I, you know, it's just expected, you know, the world and the Christian world or whatever, just, you know, they're going to probably think that I'm going to fall and, and, and give into it. And so I'm just going to lower my standard and God by his word comes in and just let me raise that back up to you where it belongs. <laughs> We're not supposed to give into temptation. We're supposed to endure temptation. And James is saying by the spirit, there's an end to this struggle. Don't you get tired of fighting your flesh? I am so sick of my flesh. I am sick of it. And I try to outrun it. I try to lose it, give it the slip, and it's always right there. It's just as fast as the rest of me. It doesn't leave. Sometimes as a new Christian, you don't realize that you have this monster, this sinful nature inside of you until you try to go against it. Then you don't realize, wow, this thing is pretty strong. And you realize, I need God's power, his supernatural power to fight this thing. And God knows that. And we can lower the standard and start giving into things so much that we don't even, we're not even fighting sin anymore. You know, you can have known the Lord for 30, 40 years and you haven't fought sin substantially in 20 of it. And that's a warning for us. We have to guard against that. God wants to keep our sensitivities high and not be desensitized to sin. And what happens is over, as we sin and we don't repent and so forth, our heart starts to get a little bit harder. We start making a little bit more compromise and so forth. And then before we know it, we're doing things we never even thought we would do ever again. Things that maybe a year ago we'd never considered doing as a believer. And now we just do it every day. It's not a big deal. 
That's the slippery slope of giving into temptation. And so the, James is saying, hey, there's a reward. Yes, it's hard to endure temptation, but it can be done by the Spirit. And you're not going to get to the end of your life and wish that you had given in more. <laughs> you're going to wish that you hadn't sinned as much as you had. And then when you get to heaven and you get your crown and your reward, you're going to really see that it's worth it. Paul, at the end of his life, said to Timothy, I've ran the race. I've kept the faith. It was a battle. And he had won. He had endured everything. And God, by God's grace, he had been faithful. Do we think that there's a different set of rules for the Apostle Paul than for us? Somehow he has the capacity to finish his race, to run well. But for me, oh no, God's grace is, doesn't reach that far because of who I am. That's a deception. There's all kinds of warnings through this passage related to deception. We're going to see a handful of them. And we have to be careful about being deceived and thinking that somehow God's grace, God's power, the sufficiency of his word and so forth is, is not a suitable or proficient enough to help my specific problem. In another place, he says, the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. In another place, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, for our light affliction, light, Paul, come on, light, light affliction, which is but for a moment, moment, kind of feels longer than a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The imagery is the scales, weighing scales. And he's saying, what, we have light affliction right now, but it's just for a moment in the context of eternity and the difficulty that we experience is just for a moment, not even a moment related to eternity. And the weight of what we're going to be in the future because of our faithfulness to God far outweighs the difficulty of this light momentary affliction. Now notice in verse 13, James wants us to be clear on the origin of temptation. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. When you're in a trial, especially if you're lacking wisdom and you're weak, we should never think that the enemy is going to not kick us when we're down. He loves to do it. He loves to do it. And someday when we see him get thrown in that lake of fire and we say, is this the one that deceived the nations, as we're told we're going to say? We're, we're, we're going to be rejoicing that Jesus had the victory. <laughs> we're going to be rejoicing. But he's saying here, look, you're going through difficulty. I'm not minimizing that. God never minimizes what we're going through, ever. You never hear him say, come on, get with it. You're going to come to me again with this. It's not that big. He doesn't do that. He's very patient, but he gives us everything that we need to navigate it. But when we're in a difficult trial, the thing that we have to be very careful of is giving in to temptation. Because the enemy will kick us when we're down. He loves to, he has no set of rules. He's not a gentleman. He kicks us when we're down. And so the very last thing we need to think is that, for one, that God's against us with this trial, the one from without. Okay, he's clarified that. And then we don't need to think that he's not going to give us the wisdom that we need in the, in the middle of that trial. And then, on top of that, we don't need to be thinking that the sinful temptation that I'm dealing with, God is sending my way, and he's really against me. That's what God's trying to prevent these believers from thinking. But we can blame God, can't we? 
Look back all the way to the garden. You have Adam and Eve, our first, the first parents of the human race. Eve was deceived. Adam was willful, willfully disobedient. And when he's called on the carpet, he makes himself twice removed, just like that. Just like that. He says, God, you know, it's the woman you gave me. Whoa, two separated. You know, it's like, okay, God, you and, you and Eve, you go work that out. This has been something that is your issue. And so while you're over there dealing with this and working this out, I'll be over here, you know, doing something else because this is all about you guys. I mean, he does that right away, but we do, it, we do the same thing, don't we? We blame shift. The sinful nature loves to blame shift. The sinful nature loves to avoid taking responsibility. It's easy to blame shift. Anybody can do it. And God wants us to, of course, not blame shift him. That's what he's talking about. We shouldn't blame shift and focus on the devil. The devil made me do it and all of those things. That's not true either. But the way that we can kind of blame God in a sense or think that the temptation and the weakness or the proclivity that I have towards certain sins is God's responsibility. And it can be veiled and very um, under the surface the way that we can express that, sometimes I've heard it this way from others and from my own mouth, is, well, you don't know my past. You don't know my past can mean, not always, but can mean, God, you're the one that gave me my past. You're the one that set things up and said, you know, I didn't plan to have these parents. I didn't have, plan to have this sibling. I didn't plan to have this, this background and this weakness towards this area. I didn't ask for all of that. And we can start really, not maybe overtly in our mind, but um, subtly be blaming God through our past and think that somehow that excuses our behavior today. Let me just dispel that completely. God's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. There's nothing that he's holding back. There's nothing that the New Testament church was at a disadvantage over related to victory over sin because they didn't have all the philosophy and all the psychology and all the things that we have today. They were never at a disadvantage. God's spirit is enough because if by the, 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 the law of the spirit I put to death the deeds of the body, I will live, God's word says in Romans. And so I have the spirit, they had the spirit, and they had the spirit as much as we have the spirit, and they had victory over sin. It doesn't matter what I've been exposed to. It doesn't matter I mean, God doesn't minimize those things, and he understands, obviously, and he, but, and he has compassion. But he also has proficient power and grace to deal with all those things. And we can live, if we have a whole, horrific background before we came to know Christ, we can have just as much of an obedient, holy life as someone that was raised in the church and, and so never got into trouble in, in, in how we would kind of analyze things. There's no limitations that we should put on the ability of, of God to, to make us live the, the life that he's called us to live. Then he gives us the very nature of temptation in verse 14. He says, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And what we really see here in verses 14 and even 15 is the mechanics of temptation. How does it function? How does it work? What goes on when I'm tempted? We don't really talk about it a lot, and we need to. And God, God talks about it here for us to understand it. And, and God puts the attention in this verse on where? The devil? No. Nope. Does he put it on God? Does he put it on our past? No, he puts it on us. He says, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. 
doesn't even mention the devil here. This, is, this originates in us. We're the problem. We need to quit blaming the devil for everything. He does capitalize. He does tempt us. Paul said we're not ignorant of his devices. But the primary way that we're tempted is that we allow things to happen in ourselves and without stopping them by the Spirit. And, and, and there's a chain of events that happen until it, we're, we're sinning. We don't even need the devil to sin. We don't need any demon to sin. We don't need help from the world at all to sin. We have the, I mean, people, these, cracks me up, these monks go to these monasteries to get away. And again, it's the same problem that I was talking about when I try to outrun my sin or outmaneuver it. They take their sinful nature with them in those castles or those monasteries. And, and of course, it would help to not have all the external stimuli related to sin. That does help to a point, but they're never going to get rid of that, that sinful nature ever. And, and so that's important for us to know. We are drawn away by our own desires and enticed. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 41, the, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He wasn't warning in the garden related to their capacity to be praying and watching with him. They, he, wasn't, they weren't talking, he wasn't talking a lot about the devil. He did say to Peter, you know, that. The, the, the devil has asked you by name to sift you as wheat and so forth. That's true. He's involved in it. But mainly he's talking about the flesh. The problem is the flesh. And then he continues with how all this works in verse 15. He says, then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. It's interesting how he describes the progression of temptation like a lifespan. You know, you have an egg and you have the sperm. They come together. There's conception. That's when life begins. Then nine months later, there's a birth. That baby grows up to be an adult. That's the imagery he's wanting us to see to help us understand how temptation and sin works. And this is how it works. We have our will that God gives us, and we have desire. For us, a sinful desire. That's our sinful nature. And when... The will and our desire come together, then something is conceived, just like the birth of a baby. The, but that first part is desire. And I can't remove that. I've tried. <laughs> I've tried to get rid of my sinful nature. It doesn't, it doesn't leave. I keep asking it. You're done here. Go on. My citizenship is in heaven. I don't have to obey you anymore. Go, leave. You're evicted. Here's your notice doesn't go. But what happens is I have a will too. And we have to know, first of all, that temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted. He never sinned. Being tempted is not sin. Now, how it works out in practical life is that I'm walking in the grocery store and as a man, I see a beautiful woman. I notice her that she's beautiful. But if I attach my will to that and I start cultivating that in my heart, now I'm sinning in my heart. And, and you hear in the world all the time, well, we can look all day long but we just can't touch. Well, that Jesus knows nothing of that. He said, if we lust after a woman, we've already committed adultery in our heart. Now, that type of adultery isn't equal to physical adultery. But he's telling those Pharisees and the disciples and all of us that just because you don't do something outwardly doesn't mean you're not guilty inwardly. That's what he's saying. So here we have the nature of, of how temptation works and how it gets birthed into sin. Usually there's not a miscarriage. 
When we attach our will to that desire, there's something that's going to be born, and that's sin. There's no short-circuiting that by accident or on purpose unless we let the Lord intervene. And so that's why our will is so important. The will and our desire have to come together, and that's when sin is born. So we don't have to let our will be involved. Then there's only one. Remember, it takes two to tango. There's only one that's involved now, my sinful nature. But if I don't act on it and I don't go, that, go cross that line, we all know what that line is. If I don't cross that line, then I'm, I'm not sinning at that point. So our will is important. That's why Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will be done. That's why Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Well, what does denying him, yourself mean? It means denying your will, not letting your will be involved in combining with that sinful desire so that sin is kept from being born. And there's, there's I mean, if you want to use the vernacular, it, there's an abortion in that sense, you know, where it's not allowed to give birth. And, and, and um, so he's saying, you have to watch out for this because this will happen. It's not, it's not might happen, it will happen. It, it says, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when it is full grown, brings forth death. We can do a lot of things to help, to help that desire out. And he says, don't do it. We can't control being tempted, but we can control letting it have its place in our lives. Martin Luther said, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop a bird from building a nest in your hair. Okay, I'll take that. That's true. We can't control what thoughts come into our mind. Our minds are contrary to the, our sinful nature. Our mind is contrary to the things of God. So some, like you're walking in a grocery store and someone, you know, a toddler or whatever puts something in your cart. Well, it's, it's not yours or not have to pay for it till you go to the cashier. You could take it out before that. So I have to form a disciplined mind. And, and the battle is in the mind. At first, when you're a new Christian, usually it's just, it's, it's actions mostly. And then over time, it starts to be motivation. It starts to be your thoughts. It starts to be all these other things that are much harder in some ways to, re- to prevent than actions. There's, there's a long step progression of considerations and letting things percolate, percolate or however you say it or for- formulate in our hearts before we actually do it physically. People that backslide, they don't just decide one day I'm going to backslide. There's a long time of non-unrepentant sin and letting things uh, um, cultivate in their hearts before, they ever, before we ever see something outwardly. It happens for a long time. It's been said the ruthlessness of sin requires us to be ruthless with sin. Sin's ruthless. And we toy with it and we think that somehow we're going to be the, the exception. But one of the things I want to encourage us with is that God always provides an escape route. And I read this a few weeks ago, but I'll read it again. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you such as is common to man. So it's your background. Yes, it's your background. It's still nothing that's not uncommon. It's very common. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a, the way, singular, the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Is it God's will for you to bear it? Yes. To bear under that and to struggle against that and fight against that. And we think, well, it's so hard. It's unbelievably hard. I, you know, it, 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 God can't expect me to, to go through this type of pain and suffering. Yes, he does. 
He does. He calls us to call upon the Lord for the strength to not sin in that moment. And that's the next scripture I want to read from Luke 22, verse 40. And this is right before, this is right at the garden where he says, when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Man, I have just really never heard a teaching and emphasizing that, that verse related to how do we prevent temptation from even starting in our lives. Prayer. Now, obviously, we, can, we can't be in a prayer meeting 24 hours a day, but we can pray without ceasing in a, in a, a heart attitude of dependence upon him. And, he, and that prevents us from even being tempted. If you ever increase your prayer life, there's, of course, spiritual warfare related to that. But there's also amazing benefits related to holiness and your, the things that you're thinking of and the things that are, you're focused on. The, if you're focusing on the eternal, then your mind will be on the eternal. If you're focusing on the temporal, your mind will be on the temporal. So this baby, so to speak, as he describes there, doesn't remain a baby. He says, uh, when it's full grown, it brings forth death. Now, we need to know what the definition of the word death is. In the New Testament, it means separation. So when it says the wages of sin is death in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, he's talking about, um, or Romans 6, 23 rather, he's talking about separation. The wages of sin is separation, both physical separation and spiritual separation related to salvation. Now he's, here he's talking about mainly physical death. You can die a premature death by giving in to sin. There's a, there's a sin that leads to death, we're told in Scripture. There's unrepentant sin. We're, we're going to experience physical death if we don't stop. People die prematurely because they don't repent of their sins. And I'm talking about a lifestyle of sin, lifestyle of destructive destruction. It, it's, it, sin isn't bad because, what is that quote? Does anyone know that quote? Sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. There we go. And that's true. So profound, I can't remember it. <laughs> but, you know, that God wants to spare us from this pain. It's not, Mr., you know, uh, ruin all our fun. And, I mean, we can think that sometimes. But he's caring for us. He wants us to be spared all of these things. This sin is born as a little like a baby, and it grows up. And we, if, there's a long progression where we could kill that thing and, die, and have it die off. But we don't. We let it grow. We let it grow. We let it grow. Now it's a teenager. Now this habit is like a teenager, and teenagers are, get, I mean, their behavior can be worse as the older they get, and before you know it, it's a, it's a full-on adult, and then you don't get a chance to let that thing live anymore. God brings, brings that whole thing to an end in allowing you to reap what you're sowing, and you die. There's the warning. So there's, there's a lot at stake here. We spent months going through Hebrews, and in chapter 3 we saw when he says, Brethren, see to it that none of you are found with a sinful, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. And we saw as we went through that book, the danger culminates in chapter 6 and chapter 10 of apostasy. There's a real serious danger for believers being careful to not fall into apostasy. And that doesn't happen overnight. It happens with unrepentant sin. And, and continuing to live in rebellion and our hearts getting deceived and hardened to the point where eventually we reject Christ. So separation is at stake and he knows for us to not be playing games with it. And that's why he says in verse 16, do not be deceived. 
my beloved brethren. He's saying something hard to them. But he says, I love you. This is, the, this is one of 19 times he's going to say beloved brethren in this book. He loves them. But, but when you love someone, you tell them the truth. And the deception, this is one of the deceptions that, about which I spoke that would be, we'd be seeing in the, in the chapter. The deception is somehow those rules are true for everybody else and unrepentant sin leads to death for them, but I'm the exception. It won't happen for me. I can't tell you how many times I've talked with believers that think that they are the exception to the rule. They somehow think it's just crazy. We do these mental gymnastics in our mind thinking that somehow we are not going to suffer the consequences. We're different somehow based on what we've done for the Lord or how long we've known for the Lord or how much we know about God's word or whatever it is. All these things that we can set up in our minds that like somehow I'm the exception. He says, do not be deceived. You are not the exception to this rule. God is not mocked, Paul said in Galatians. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. He said, he's saying that to Christians. So we need to take the warning. It brings death. Now he contrasts the sin with what God offers in verse 17. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. The whole point of verse 17 is you're not missing anything that's good. By, with, by standing strong against sin, by dealing with temptation appropriately and not giving into it, thus getting a reward someday in heaven with a crown, you will not get to the end of your life and say, boy, did I miss out. He's saying there is so much here that's good. You're not recognizing that everything that's good and everything that's perfect is not just there by happenstance. It's there because you have a loving Father that's provided those things to you to enjoy so that you don't even, aren't even interested in these other inferior things that rip you off and that cause death. Do we appreciate the things in life that are a blessing to us? I feel bad for atheists. Honestly, I do. Because on Thanksgiving, they're, they're frustrated. There's no one that they can thank. If you had a gift that just appeared in your living room and it was something that you really wanted, not like a scale or something. <laughs> it was like something that you really wanted. And, but you had no idea who gave it to you. How much could you enjoy that gift? It'd be hard to enjoy that. But knowing who that gift is connected to, the heart that's behind that gift, changes everything. It makes us appreciate it. It makes us be, when we use it, we're thinking of them. You know, we're, we're thankful for them and so forth. That's our whole life. Everything in this life that's good, as a Christian, we need to see that as a gift from God and enjoy it as he would have us enjoy it. What if you're a child and you don't realize something that your parents gave you is something that, you, that they wanted for you to be blessed with? It wouldn't make it enjoyable. The parent is blessed knowing, because we know as we get older, it really is more blessed to give than to receive, especially at Christmas and we give our kids and grandkids toys and gifts and so forth, and we're more blessed than they are. And so the Father is saying, I want you to enjoy your gifts knowing my heart behind them. And anything that you're thinking that you're getting that I'm not supplying by going to sin is a ripoff and inferior. Every bad thing and every unperfect thing is from below and comes from the devil, ultimately. But God is a loving father. Notice he says, from the father of lights. Why does he say that? He's talking about holiness. 
Light is always associated with God because he shines light into the darkness. He is light. And if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So he says, I am the father of lights. I'm all about holiness. And notice he says, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. It's like picturing moons or planets or constellations or you know light that comes in sometimes we see the light sometimes we don't based on their position in the sky saying God isn't like that he's not going to be out of focus he's not going to be not giving you certain gifts at certain times because somehow his position towards you is changing his his position towards you is constant and he's a loving father that wants to give you good gifts all the time and you're going to be able to receive these good gifts at any time because he, he doesn't change he's constant It's beautiful. Verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Wow. Of his own will. This is talking about our new creation here. Brought us forth spiritually by the word of truth, by the gospel. Made us into new creation so that we would be the first fruits of his creatures. That wasn't by accident. Then he says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Let's just move on to 20. Let's just not, you know, yeah. Ouch. Oh, man. You ever wonder why we have two ears and one mouth? (laughs) I think it's a good message to us. We're supposed to be listening twice as much as we talk, and usually it's the other way around. You ever gotten in trouble by listening too much? I've never gotten in trouble for listening too much. Usually it's, I don't know what to say to my wife, and I'm just listening and listening and listening like, I don't know what to say, so I listen. It's not because I don't have an opinion. It's just I know it's not right at the moment, you know? So I'm just listening. Aren't you going to say anything? Maybe. We usually never get in trouble by listening too much. I still think of James with the Lord Jesus in his home growing up. Just can you imagine how great he listened and how little he spoke, not a wasted word. He warned about having idle words. We're going to get to that in chapter 3. I'm not going to get bogged down on this tongue too much because there's so much later that we're going to be convicted over. Um, we want to save all of that for the appropriate time. But, you know, just imagine how Jesus was being ready to hear. Listen to all of his six siblings on what they had to say, their opinions, what they thought about things. He was never impatient with them. He met, his words were measured. They only, he only said things that built them up all the time. He was slow to wrath. They, and so I bet you all those siblings, when they heard that he cleared out the temple twice, oh, that must have took a lot because he is slow to wrath. He doesn't get mad very often. So whatever it was that got him upset in their unbelief because they didn't know the Lord yet, it was something that it took a while or, or it was very significant of what he was feeling at, at, at the time. We can be in a trial, we can be tempted, we can go in in these situations in life, and the first thing we want to do is talk. The last thing we want to do is listen. And God says, when you're going through a trial, when you're going through difficulty, when you're needing wisdom, listen. Listen, listen, listen. Take everything in. Be slow to speak. You're not at a, (laughs) a real good place at the moment to be doing a lot of talking. It doesn't really produce anything helpful for us most of the time. And being slow to wrath. And I believe this is probably a, a, a progression. How many altercations happen that end up in someone losing their temper where one person was listening too much? 
<laughs> not very often. They're not listening. They're, doing, they're both doing a lot of talking, and it gets escalated, escalated until they're starting to do blows now. It could very well be like a progression. I have found that the most godly people I know are very good at listening, and they don't talk a whole lot. And I look at those people as an example from my life. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19 says, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Well, that just busts me pretty good right there. Because I talk way too much. There's a multitude of words going on regularly, usually. So it's a good exhortation. When you listen carefully, you know how to respond. Being, knowing how to answer someone comes a lot easier when we're listening because we think about the situation longer. We don't come to quick judgments. We think about scripture. We think about what is needed in this situation. And then we just say the right thing at the right moment. You ever been around those godly people where they just said the right thing and that's pretty much all that they said. It's probably because they listened for a long time. Huge encouragement for us. Man, talk about uh, practical living here. You know, with children, one of the things you have to teach them is not say the first thing that comes to their mind, right? You're at dinner, you have guests over. Daddy told us to not say things to you that might embarrass us. Thanks, appreciate that. You have to teach them to have self-control, to not say the first thing. But it can't, isn't it the same way with us, with our spiritual maturity? When we're new believers, say the first thing that comes, out of, that comes to our mind sometimes related to spiritual things. And over time, God says, no, you need to be contemplative a little bit about what you say and how it's going to affect people and the implications of those things. And God works those things in our lives, and it's beautiful. Spiritual immaturity can look like that, too, in, in, in ways where when we're in a trial, he doesn't need us to say the first thing that comes out of our mouth or we think. We need to be listening and be careful about what we say. Verse 20, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Oh, man, <laughs> that, that, that hits us at home pretty good. We think we're helping God out. God, if I get mad and if I show what's the truth in this situation and forcefully let people know where you stand on the matter, I'm going to be doing you a favor. He goes, you're not doing me a favor at all. It doesn't produce the righteousness of God whatsoever. And so that's a good warning for us. You know, the wrath of man can disqualify as fast as any other sin. Many, many people have been disqualified in ministry because of anger. But that's part of what the purpose of trial. You know what God does a lot of times in those contexts? He just gives us some trials that works patience. Because if per patience has its perfect work in us, we're not flying off the handle left and right. Because we have the patience. I mean, you can't be, how many people you know are flying off the handle all the time and engaged in rage who are patient? They don't go together. So we want to learn these lessons as much as possible because there are some very specific trials that he can allow into our lives that can work in such a way where it produces that patience so we don't uh, fly off the handle and, and express that type of rage. Verse 21, therefore lay aside some filthiness, no, it doesn't say that, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save, and the real meaning is preserve your souls. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, Paul said, 
that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt. Wait a minute, I thought it, was, there was, it wasn't going to grow anymore. No, it, just, it grows worse and worse, more and more corrupt. According to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you may put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and in holiness. So it's up to us to put off the old man and put on the new man. That's not something that God does for us. We have to do that in obedience to his word. But ungodliness and filthiness, they militate or work against how I can receive the word of God. Remember the parable of the soils? What was the issue there? The soil represented the heart. So when I can't receive the word of God, it's it's not a poor reflection on the farmer, God. It's not a reflection on the seed, the word of God. Nothing wrong with the word of God. It's not even a reflection on Satan, even though he comes and snatches certain the word out of our hearts if we're a certain we have a certain type of heart. It's because we have a responsibility to have the kind of heart that he wants us to have that will bear fruit. So it's important for us to see that when he says there um, that with meekness we able to receive the implanted word, that our soul the the the, what's at risk here is our souls will not be preserved in the way that God wants them to be preserved because we can't receive the word of God because of how um, our hearts are. And so he wants us to be very clear on that. And then he gets to being obedient to God's word in verses 22 through 24. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. I think this is one of the most amazing analogies in the Bible. It's perfect. It's flawless. Because this word of God here, it's a book. And every other book in this world, we think, when we we think about a book, we're thinking information. We're thinking knowledge here. And that's why I believe the Holy Spirit paints this picture of a mirror. Because when you think of a mirror, you think of something that has a purpose that changes, or the results of what that is and how it works in your life changes from one moment, one day to the next. Because a mirror gives us an accurate assessment of our appearance, but just for that moment. Ten minutes later, we may look differently. You ever had that? You go to the mirror, hey, you like the fawn, sorry to do the sitcom thing, but hey, you know. And then you go away and something happens, you eat something or whatever, you're around everyone in the family. And 10 minutes later, you go to see the mirror and you have a, you know, a cinnamon roll hanging out your, your mouth that you didn't see. Hey, why didn't you tell me I had a cinnamon roll hanging out of my mouth? Because our appearance changes from one moment to the next. That's why it's brilliant that he, that he associates the word of God with a mirror. Because it's not, mirrors, aren't, mirrors are not for information. Mirrors are to reflect reality from one moment to the next. And spiritually speaking, we change from one moment to the next. We need something to tell us our true condition and how it's changed or not changed from one moment to the next. That's why it's folly to think that God's supremely interested in what I know and measures my spiritual maturity based on what I know versus what I'm doing at the moment. That's what James is getting at. Don't be just hearers of the word, be doers of the word. And so we think, well, I'm doing okay because I know that we should preach the gospel. But I haven't preached the gospel in 15 years or a year, two months. I know I should be 
uh, obeying the Lord and whatever it is, loving people, but I don't do it. I know I shouldn't gossip, but I gossip. I know I shouldn't. Whatever, the, whatever it is, we can make a whole long list of things. Because we, think, because we know that we know we should do those things, we assess ourselves as okay. God doesn't do that. He says, if you are living at the moment in obedience to that thing, you're doing okay. But just like we get up in the morning and our, our parents is totally different, when we wake up in the morning and we're looking at this, I may have preached the gospel yesterday, but today I, maybe I haven't. Or I haven't even considered it. Or I don't even have a heart for the lost today. I did yesterday, but today I don't. That is, see, if I don't obey what God's word says, then because obedience to God's word shows me how I am at that moment related to my obedience to God. And if I don't know that, then I'm forgetting what I look like. I'm forgetting my true condition. We should want to know our true condition spiritually at any given moment. Well, the word of God is the one that does that. But if I can't receive it because of all these things in my life, then it won't produce the fruit that it was intended to produce. You see the deception? He's getting to this deception. It's very, very powerful. Obeying God's word in and of itself is a moment-by-moment assessment of my true condition. And God wants us to be very on solid ground related to it. Now he says, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work this one will be blessed in all he does. This kind of sounds like a paradox. The law of liberty? We don't associate liberty with laws, but God's word sets us free. And freedom is not doing whatever we want to do according to the dictates of our flesh, but freedom is doing what we are made to do in the spirit. That's true freedom. And that's what God wants for our lives. So he says, we, don't, we, shan't, we can't be a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, and then we'll be blessed we're looking at the next two verses at three things the three things in verse 26 and 27 are this we have to be able to bridle our tongue we need to not forget the vulnerable and we need to keep ourselves undefiled from the world if we do those things then we're in participating in pure and undefiled religion. He says in verse 26, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. God doesn't care what we look like, how spiritual we, how much we, scriptures we can quote, how often we're among God's people. He care, I mean, he cares about those things, but I'm saying if we have a lifestyle of not controlling our tongue, he's saying that everything that we're engaged in is, is not pure. It's, not, it's been defiled, and that's what we don't want. So, I mean, you hear people talk, and they say, hey, you can't, you, you know, I'm saying these things, and you don't know my heart. Well, Jesus said, out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. So in part, I can know your heart based on what's coming out of your mouth right now. So to say, well, yeah, I'm mature, I, I love the Lord, I'm growing and so forth, but I'm slandering, I'm gossiping, I'm saying profanity, I'm saying things that don't build people up, I'm you know, using the Lord's name in vain, I'm using Jesus' name as a cuss word. There are Christians that do that. It's hard for me to imagine that. But what comes out of our mouth is important, but we have to have our, a heart change. That will change everything. The two most vulnerable groups of people in this world are orphans and widows. And he says, pure undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. 
They're the most vulnerable people in many ways. We don't have orphanages a lot in this country, but there are, they are in other countries. They're huge in other countries. But I consider, you know, someone that doesn't have a, a healthy parent, I consider that like an orphan in a sense. Widows need to take care of widows. God has a special, he has a, you mess with widows, you mess with the orphans, you're messing with God. You're messing with his heart. He cares about the vulnerable. And you can't get any more vulnerable, especially in that culture, than widows and orphans. And notice he doesn't say that we are to care, to, to, to have a concern for, for orphans and widows, and that's it. He says, visit. See that? Visit orphans and widows. We can't just be going through the motions and having, you know, yeah, we, we care about them and so forth. You can't have, you can't be aloof and distant and disconnected from, with your heart from the needs of them when you're in their presence and you see their issues. So he says you need to be in their, this is not just leaders, this is everybody. Be in their presence. See what their needs are. Have compassion. If you just say, you know, go, go on and be fed and, and don't do anything, then we're not expressing true love. John said in John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart, again, the, the issue is the heart, shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? The obvious answer is it doesn't. And that's a searching thing. We can say we are for widows. We are for orphans. We are for homeless people. We are for people addicted to drugs. We are for all those things. But we are not willing to to do anything towards practically helping them as the Spirit directs, then our religion is impure and it's imperfect and, it's, and it, it grieves the heart of God. So that's the real <laughs> situation. The real, there's two deceptions that we've seen as I begin to close, start my descent. I can be deceived into thinking I'm the exception to sowing to the, into the flesh. I can think that somehow it's not going to affect me like it does everybody else. And again, Paul said, by the Spirit, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. So we will not escape. If you're in disobedience today, you're in willful disobedience. Listen, if you're in willful disobedience today, you need to repent. You need to make things right between you and God. Don't play games with your relationship with him. He went through so much for us and died for us to give us that freedom. Don't use that freedom to go back into a yoke of bondage or go back into uh, being... Uh, entrapped by it. The second deception that we have to be protected from from this passage is the thinking that I'm okay because I merely know something about God's word. But God says, I'm okay if I'm doing something in God's word. That's the true assessment. He said, we're created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared in advance that we should walk in them. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. And we think because we're not saved by works that works are optional. God's like, it'd be great if you did, but if you don't, I understand. No, he says you are created in Christ Jesus for good works. And, and so when he says, I'm assessing your life a certain way, it's not just by what you know. It's what you're currently doing at that moment, at the, on that day that I'm speaking to you. That should be something that concerns us. Jesus said in, chap in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? He didn't say, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not know the things that I say? He said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I said? And he likens a wise man who built his house on a rock by obeying what Jesus said, not just hearing only. He's, he's, we've seen that in recent weeks. 
Obedience, not supremely knowledge, is God's test. And we need to have this going off the same test as he does so that we can know uh, where we're at. That's how we know where our true spiritual temperament or temperature is. 1 John is my last passage. 1 John chapter 2, verse uh, 3 through 6 says, By this we know that we know him if we will keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So that's how we know that we're saved. I know the Spirit testifies to our spirit that we're children of God. But one of the ways that we know that we're saved is if our lives look different than they did before we claimed to know him. If we prayed a prayer and our lives never changed, you're not saved. It's impossible for God the Holy Spirit to come into a life and not change that life. And so if there's no change, I mean, he's trying to break us free from deception. He told the Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. If Christ is in you, unless you fail the test. We have to examine ourselves. It's not just belief, it's receive. We have to receive Jesus. We have to repent of our sins. And our lives will change. And so as we live the different kind of life he's called us to live, that's supposed to reassure us that we really are in the truth. And we really are believers. So he's just getting started. He just did one chapter. So much here. So much to be convicted over. But not just to be convicted, but to to say, Lord, here I am. I'm your servant. I want to be pleasing to you in a practical way. Positionally, I'm perfect before you. But in a practical way, related to how I live my life, I want it to represent worship. I want it to represent obedience. I don't want to be self-deceived. So let's take that to heart by his spirit. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we just love your word. We're so full right now. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you that you never stop working in our lives to make us more like you. You're the only one that can make us into who we are supposed to be. And I pray, Lord, if there's any self-deception here, I pray that you'd break through it. If there's anyone playing games with you, and playing religion, and going through the motions, I pray, Lord, that you would get a hold of their heart, help them to see the urgency that you're beckoning them to repent with. And I pray, Lord, that they would totally, completely sell out and surrender to you. Lord, would you protect our fellowship from hypocrisy? Protect us, Lord. You hate hypocrisy. Help us to never put on a mask and never act a certain way when we know we're different inwardly. Make us into the people you've called us to be. We know we can't do it in our own strength. Encourage those that have failed over and over again, Lord. Encourage us. Help us to know how to do it in a biblical way, by the law of the Spirit, to, to, to ask you for the strength we need to be obedient to you. Bear fruit through our lives that bring you glory, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.